great to see you. I know we have a lot of people visiting. We really appreciate your presence. Uh, always fun to meet and uh, see new people, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. If you open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and 2, we'll be talking about a lot of principles from this uh, particular text. It has come to my attention over and over again as I've uh, taught a little side note here. I had the question asked even this evening about some of the things that I teach and preach and some of the things that are on the screen, uh, etc. And uh, if you didn't know, all of my notes are posted usually, unless I have something major come up. All my notes are posted on our website uh, along with the recording, and so you can always see uh, everything on there. Uh, visit the site. Uh, you have a lot of, uh, we're building more and more opportunities and more and more uh, material that you can access. So there's a lot on there if, uh, if that is helpful uh, to you. I'll put in a plug for my son, Brent. If you've never visited his website, he'll fill in anything I didn't say. <laughs> so, uh, West Palm Beach, uh, I, think, I think now it's just westpalmbeach.com, westpalmbeachchurchchrist.com. Either of those will get to his site as well. There's material uh, pretty much on every book of the Bible. Uh, on his uh, site. He's been doing it a lot longer than me, even though I'm a lot older than him. So, uh, he's, he's got that as well. One of the things that as we have been studying through, and I've been preaching on Sunday mornings concerning uh, overcoming apostasy, being able to keep ourselves strong during hard times, uh, being able to meet up with the challenge that come, comes in every Christian's life, uh, is, is something that has always come to my mind as we've been studying this, is how the message in Ecclesiastes blends in with that uh, so much. And I, and I thought this uh, tonight we would talk a little bit about this particular text, Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through uh, chapter 3 and verse 22. It's not intended to be an exposition of this text, but intended to blend in with a lot of the things that we've talked about in Hebrews as to how to keep ourselves strong. The Hebrew writer has dealt with a lot of principles. The Ecclesiastes writer gets into some really great details on how to live day by day, how to live by faith every day. And, and I, I can tell you that for my life, and those of you who've spent time in studying Ecclesiastes, you know how critical it is to keeping balance in your life. I'm glad that Jerry's been teaching the uh, the young adult class this this. Uh, these la this last quarter uh, on this. It's so very valuable. Please always go back to this. If you do not know Ecclesiastes well, uh, uh, there's a lot of us that would be glad to help you with that, but please spend some time and study with it. It will bring great balance to your life. We're going to try to hit some of those central things then uh, this evening. Let me set the text up for you just for a moment. We are, we are looking at, and, and I've always been impressed with a simple statement we all repeated. It's repeated in the New Testament. It comes out of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Live living by faith, or live the righteous live by faith. Think for a moment about that particular statement. The righteous shall live by faith. The operative word first is live. Life 
true living only comes by faith. Life is based upon the unseen. And we have to live that way. It has to be practiced. It cannot be just said. It cannot be just parroted. It has to be something that we really practice. Ecclesiastes helps us in that regard. Now, the, the writer here, and especially in these first two chapters, highlights Solomon. If you'll look at chapter 1 and verse 13, you will notice that the preacher says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So here is Solomon going on a search, a seeking and a searching to find out what can be done under heaven, finding out wisdom under heaven. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you look at chapter 2, and well, I got to have myself there. You look at chapter 2 and verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of his life. Notice, please, that he starts this with saying, this particular search God has given to the children of man. God has given this to people, to humans, and he says it's an unhappy business that God has given. Well, you say that if it's an unhappy business, why did God give it? He gave it so you'd quit doing it. How about that? <laughs> he gave it so that you'd get miserable trying to discover it and you would find a better way. That's what he's really doing. But Solomon says, he is the, the preacher says, let's just illustrate this and we're going to look at Solomon, just illustrate how Solomon was such a failure in his searching and seeking except to send the message to us, not to duplicate what he has, what he has done. Notice especially we, if we read 2, 1 through 11, we'd see all the things that Solomon said he did. But look especially at verse 10. He says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward in all my toil. So he said here, when I'm seeking and searching, I did something that no other human being would ever be able to do. I, I was able to do whatever my heart desired. I didn't keep my heart from any pleasure. If my eyes saw it and I wanted to do it, I just did it. Now, all of us every day, uh, I, 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 like, I like cars. Not owning them necessarily. I just think they're kind of cool. Used to work on them, used to build tear down engines, things like this. Got a kick out of them. Now they're so complicated, I can't figure out how to change the brakes half the time. But, uh, but it's just, it just kind of cool. I study them in Consumer Reports. What's the better ones? What's the worse ones? By the way, I notice a lot of you drive terrible cars. Disney <laughs> just, they, they, it, uh, all, but anyway, I, I just observe those kinds of things. And, kind of, and, and Teresa now, we'll, oh, look at that, man. That's an Audi. That's an Audi A6. That is cool looking. Just really. Well, see, Solomon, he just go, get me that. <laughs> get me that. I'm really happy, by the way, with my nice 2011 Honda Accord. I'm thrilled with it. But, you know, it, it, that's, that's not Solomon. He's like, ah, give me that. Like Samson, it pleases me well. 
get her for me. What, that, that was Solomon in every regard of his life. And whatever he wanted, he took. But look at verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I expended in doing it. Behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So Solomon gets to this point where when it's all said and done, he says, yeah, you know, there was some joy and pleasure in doing it, but when I got done, it was nothing but vanity and striving after wind. Please don't read over the phrase striving after wind too quickly. That is, that is the preacher's way of saying it was the dumbest thing on the face of the earth. <laughs> Some of the more modern versions say chasing the wind. I mean, can you imagine if you ask somebody, what do you do in life? What, what, what do you do? What's your work? What's your job? Whatever. And he said to you, I chase the wind. Boy, somebody needs to get the men in white suits and come and take this guy away. Are you crazy? Yeah, I'm trying to catch it. What? You're going to destroy yourself. This is the worst thing you could do. It is just crazy. And that's really what the preacher is telling us here. This is not a smart thing to do. Look on over in verse 17 and look at Solomon's conclusion of what he's done in his life. And he says, so I hated, look at that, I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after wind. I absolutely came to the, can you imagine Solomon saying, I hated life. I, it just was horrible. None of us would ever think that a man who was able to do whatever he wanted to do, attain whatever he wanted to attain, could turn around somewhere in the middle of it and say, I just hate this. This is, this is terrible. So Solomon does everything he can, the preacher does everything he can, in order to convince us of the destruction that one does to their lives when they live as Solomon lived and search to seek the things that Solomon sought out after as he describes them in chapters, chapter 2, 1 through 11. Fortunately, he doesn't go very long with that. When he gets to verse 24, he does a complete reversal. Suddenly, he contrasts what we have seen with Solomon and what now is the only alternative to Solomon's vain search, to the lifestyle that he had lived. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, it's hard to find somebody that doesn't follow the vain search that Solomon had. And the striving after wind. He's giving the typical example of the way life is. Now he interjects hope. By the way, I might mention to you, some who have read Ecclesiastes thought that Solomon needed Prozac uh, or something else to, uh, to lift his depression. Well, he's got God to lift his depression, as the preacher is going to show here, beginning in verse 24. There's a, there's a way that that can happen uh, without having to help Solomon uh, medicinally, uh, medicinally. So look at verse 24 through 26. He says, there is nothing better 
for a person that, that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So notice here as, as the preacher turns uh, us away from the lifestyle of Solomon. He's giving us here the only a way that we can avoid the vain search of, as he refers to it, life under heaven or life under sun. And I want you to see the contrast between Solomon's life in chapter 2, 1 through 11 and how the preacher then contrasts that in chapter 2, 24 through 26. You will see in your text that three times he mentions this. At the end of verse 24, it, it, I saw it's from the hand of God. What is? Finding enjoyment. That you should eat and drink and find enjoyment. That's from the hand of God. And then verse 25, apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? How different it was when he's talking about Solomon in chapter 2, 1 through 11. And the word I, 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 I is used all the way through. I did this. I did that. I. And then he gets to this and he says, so there's nothing better than eat and drink and enjoy the good life. It's, it's a gift from God. And nobody can find enjoyment without him. And then verse 26, for to the one who pleases God. Uh, pleases him. God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. The end of verse 26, only, only to give it to the one who pleases God. Everything now centers on God and a being able to attain joy and peace and wisdom and knowledge with God. And that's a gift that God gives instead of one going out and thinking they can grab as the old beer commercial said, grab all the gusto because you only go around once in life. You got to be old to have heard that one, I'm sorry. Um, maybe I don't see enough beer commercials nowadays to update that, but uh, anyway, you, you can see that. Going on in the text, just to illustrate this and prove this more, then you see in chapter, in chapter 2 or chapter 3, 1 through 9, the, the passage that was read for us this evening. What'd you get out of that passage? 14, 14 pairs of contrast. There's a time to be born, a time to die, there's a time to mourn, there's a time to dance, uh, there's a time of war and there's a time of peace, there's a time to be quiet and there's a time to speak, a time of hatred and a time of love. If we're not careful, we would read that and say, well, okay, so the time for me to be quiet, and there's a time for me to speak. That's not what he's saying. Well, it's a time to have war. Yeah, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is these events happen, and you cannot control them. In fact, I think that's what verse 9 is saying. What, what prophet uh, has, the, has the laborer, the worker under the sun? What prophet is it to try to change those things, to try to manipulate those 14 contrasts so you only get the good side of them? We, we would love it if there's only a time of peace and never a time of war. We'd love it if there was never a time of hatred and only a time of love. 
But that's not the way it is, is it? And work as we might to stop the negative side, those things, those events in life still afflict us. And to try to stop them is a, is a vain effort. And therefore, the preacher goes on to chapter 3 and look at verse 12 and 13. He again repeats his principle. He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. He's referring to that again. Relax, take it back. You cannot go out on this search and seek mission to try to grab everything you can. You're not going to be profitable in that. You're going to be chasing the wind. It isn't going to work. Instead, enjoy the good. Enjoy the stuff that God has given you. Enjoy the pleasure of, of the toil that God has given It's God's gift to you. This is an important then principle. And then he goes on to verse 14 even, and he says, And I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Now, when he begins the beginning, the beginning of that statement, whatever God does endures forever. In other words, when you go back and look at verses 1 through 9 and all those contrasting events, these are the things God has done. We might not have seen that if it weren't for the fall in the Garden of Eden. We might not have seen all of these terrible things back and forth, I would think, if sin did not afflict in our lives. But since it has, God has ordered life this way. The reality of life is that. And we cannot get beyond that. We cannot change these major events. And why does he want it that way? He says at the end of verse 14, God has done it so people will fear before him. The wise person comes to the conclusion that you cannot control the events of life. You cannot manipulate your life in such a way that everything is going to work out for you perfectly. There is no such thing as back to the future movies where you can go back and fix what went wrong, and uh, make your life better. I was thinking about this the other day, the, 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 the final of the trio of Back to the Future movies, uh, when the doc comes back on his uh, fancy train time machine, and uh, Marty says, well, what about the future? And his last words are, you're the one who makes it. <laughs> You've got to do... Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm glad you made that. You ended that, uh, that, uh, that way. That there, there's something you have to do if you're going to affect your future. You can't go forward and do that. And notice, too, the, the emphasis that he makes here. When he says then down verse 22, he says it again about there's nothing better. Notice how he keeps saying that. So I saw that there was nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Ah, that's so important. Why does God order life so that today is a time of love, tomorrow may be a time of hatred, today is a time of peace, tomorrow may be a time of war? Why is life ordered that way? Because he's emphasizing to us 
Number one, you're not in control of your own destiny, your own life in the sense of the events that might happen. You're in control of what you do and how you respond, but you're not going to be able to manipulate those things to your advantage. But secondly, he says, so that you'll never know what's going to happen after you. So anybody want to give me a rundown of how uh, your day is going to go tomorrow? You want to give me minute by minute, hour by hour? I know you have it in your mind. Oh, yeah, you've got it. Yeah, I'm going to get up at this hour, and I'm going to get ready, and I'll go to work, and or I'll do this, whatever you're going to do. You've got that in your mind, but do you know that's going to work? Do you know that's the way it's going to happen? You don't, you don't. Uh, and who knows what will happen. Tomorrow will be entirely different, and God does not want us to know what's going to happen tomorrow, which should cause us, again, as he has pointed out, that we should fear before him, end of the verse 14. The wise person says, God knows what's going to happen tomorrow. God knows how these events are going to take place. If I can put and my faith in God, if I can live by faith in Him and not walk by sight, but walk by faith and see the one who is invisible, every day I'm living with accepting the gifts that He gives me and evaluating it that way, then I'm going to be able to overcome whatever goes that way. When you've been through a especially maybe your first bad trial. I know for me, one of the things that happened is for years, I kept thinking, when will the other shoe drop? <laughs> I kept getting nervous about if there's that trial, what might come next? And I would get a little fearful. And it took a while, uh, really building faith, to be able to come to the point where you, where you say to yourself, whatever it is, it's okay. Because God is there and God is going to get me through it. And whatever it is, he's the greatest of all. He's the one who can get me through anything. If I'm fearful, it's because I'm afraid I won't get through it. And that's foolish because God will get me through. And I'm putting too much confidence in me and not living by faith. I'm living by sight. I'm violating the very principle he's trying to get me to do here in Ecclesiastes is you don't know and therefore you're going to put your hope and dream in God. And whatever tomorrow's events are, you'll be all right. Just go do your work and enjoy the gift that God has given you. I, I think it, uh, it cool, too, that we should rejoice in God's gift. What's his gift in this text? Oh, joy, enjoyment of work, enjoyment of being able to eat and drink. Is it not also true? To be able to enjoy the gift he gives me when the gift is a trial when the gift is today is not so great, measured by earthly standards. Can I also rejoice in that gift? Because if I cannot, and if I do not, I'm not only violating direct statements of Scripture like in James 1, where he says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various temptations and trials. I'm not only violating that, I'm again, the reason that is so is because I'm not living by faith. My trust is not in him as it should be. If he gave me that gift, 
I going to open it up and throw it back at him? Am I going to throw that in his face? Ever received a gift for Christmas and it was one of those white elephant things and you went, <laughs> you tried to go, well, thank you, I think. <laughs> God doesn't give white elephant gifts. He gives gifts that are profitable and good. He gives gifts because he loves us. And we need to accept the gifts. It's, it's, a, it's just such a cool thing. Now, let's take it from there. And let's apply this to the preacher's message of living by faith that comes out of Hebrews, out of Habakkuk. But here is the practical way that this works out. The first thing <clears throat> I want you to notice is back in chapter 2, verse 24. We notice that he says this three times. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, was from the hand of God. There is nothing better to live apart from him is not to find enjoyment. And you see this highlighted over and again here. You're not going to find any greater pleasure, enjoyment, or joy. You're not going to find it outside of Him. Oh, I will never forget years ago, one of our junior high teachers, <clears throat> not at this congregation, but another, one of our junior high teachers came to me and said, you cannot believe the answers I got from the junior high kids this morning when I handed out a question. What is the most important thing that you want to attain in your life? And she said, every child in that class, other than maybe one, responded with some kind of attainment of money, power, position, earthly pleasure, all of them. I thought, wow. Should we go talk to the parents? <laughs> this is where your child is. That's horrifying. It's like every child saying, my dream is to chase the wind the rest of my life and completely destroy myself. Because that's the answer. He said, well, I'm not going to get involved in any kind of sin. I don't, that, this is deeper than that. This has to do with eternity, but it also has to do with your joy now. You are going to miss joy now. One of the things that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, that matches this perfectly is when he said, whoever tries to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is not a statement, as I used to think when I was a young kid, that, well, okay, here's the way it is. You'll lose your life now. It'll be the pits, but you get to go to heaven. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. He's saying you lose life. You lose life when you try to save your life. The hardest thing for us to do is to say, it's not my life. It's his life. If he wants to wreck it, 
That's his business because I'm bought by him and he'll wreck it for his cause. That's a good wreck. Hard to get to. By the way, matter of wisdom out of Ecclesiastes, out of Proverbs, out of Hebrews, one of the reasons that he puts us through serious trials, one of the reasons he'll take times where he'll wreck our lives is because he wants to save us from wrecking our own lives by trying to go around and grab everything and do what Solomon did. He's trying to show us we're out of control and that we want to and need to put our control in his hands. It's not our life. It's his. Notice, especially when you look at that, there's nothing better. When I think of that, I should, I should think about the idea that there is no possession, there is no pleasure, there is no experience that you could have in this life that is somehow going to be better than living for him. Absolutely not. Not even close. There's not even a comparison. That's exactly why we read this morning how Moses gave up the wealth and riches and treasures of Egypt in order to suffer affliction with the people of God. Why did he do that? Because he measured the value of the treasure, and the treasure in this life was so unimportant, was so small, was so little, was so fleeting vanity that he chose the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's such a big mistake that we make when we see that. And the other thing this calls us to is the importance of contentment. What's God's gift for you today? No grumbling about it. No murmuring about it. Contentment of what he's giving you. It's a good gift. It's a wonderful gift. Enjoy the gift. If you're thinking as the rich man did in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 12, of, well, God's given me this so I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have goods for many years. Let me eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. If that is what you are looking at, you lost contentment. I always thought it was impressive, that parable. Jesus starts the parable with a certain rich man, a certain rich man's field bore plentifully. He was already rich. And he was not content. And he was not yet happy. His view of the future was, someday I will eat and drink and enjoy the good of my labor. What a bummer <laughs> to live that way. That's horrible. You can do it now. There is nothing better. It teaches us content contentment. And notice verse 26. <clears throat> There's two choices here. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Okay? Now, would you like wisdom, knowledge, and joy? Yay, team. We all vote for that. Uh, wisdom? Yeah. Give me some of that. Give me a whole bunch of that. Give me some knowledge. Give me a whole bunch of that. 
and give me joy. God gives, you don't earn, you don't grab, you don't get because of your prowess and your, your mental strength or your, your physical strength or how smart you are, anything else. You don't get it that way. You get it because God gives it to you. It is a gift. But who does he give it to? He gives it to the one who pleases him. There's one choice. The second choice is, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. And Solomon adds, boy, is that vanity and striving after the wind. I have done all this to grab, and what God does is takes it away and gives it to the person he pleases him, and what do I get? The labor and the hardship of gathering and collecting. Which one do you want to be? You know, please understand, Solomon, or the preacher here, was not suggesting that you should not do well in your job, that you should not seek to increase and, and attain the best you can. We know that because chapter 9, verse 10, he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Nothing wrong with that. That cannot be where you fill yourself. That cannot be where your joy and pleasure is going to be found. That cannot be that which you live for. That's where it can't stand. That's where the balance has to stay. It's so very, very important. And another thing that we see here. The second lesson I think is important from all of this. There is no permanence to anything in life. There's no permanence. We, we get in our minds when things are going well. We get in our minds they're always going to go well. <laughs> we, we seem to predict the future. Oh, yeah, it's... Boy, I've got it all planned out. It's going well now. It's going to keep getting better. Uh, There's no permanence. And the opposite happens as well. Things aren't going well. We get in our minds that there's never going to be a remedy. We can depress, get depressed and discouraged and act as if it's always going to be that way. Well, that's not true either. Not by those who live by faith. And therefore... I would suggest this. This is where what the Hebrew writer talks about, patience and endurance. If I know that there is no permanence, then I can always lift my head in whatever that takes place. You know, God has a purpose for this now, and things will change. I'm not especially looking forward, as a Californian, to waking up this Friday morning in six degrees. That is not something I ever dreamed I would experience. Californians don't experience that. That's dumb. We just figured God didn't make places like that for people to live, and here I am. It's just that kind of thing. I'm not looking forward to it, but I'll tell you what I am looking forward to. Spring! <laughs> I like the thought that the weather changes. Yay, if you don't like it today, wait a little It'll be, get, it'll be better. But I have learned, by the way, after 26 years, to even enjoy at times the six degrees. That's okay. It is God's gift, and it is nice. Patience and endurance, God brings us to the goal. So very important. And secondly, there's a warning against complacency, and there's a warning against discouragement. If you think 
that the good time will always be the good time. One day, your life is going to be rocked by a trial. And it'll be difficult for you. It'll be challenging for you. You could lose your faith because of it, because you're not thinking in reality. And it is important for us to think God is trying to get us to accept the reality of the day. You need to not be complacent. Prepare yourself. Why did God give Proverbs? Why did God give Job? Why did God give Ecclesiastes and Psalms? Why did he give those books? Because he knows we'd be through trial. And this is a major, major, 15 plus percent of the Old Testament written to prepare us for the changing of life. The trials that were come, as well as the good times. It is something that is a benefit for us. Are we preparing? The person who has not spent good time studying these poetic literature, this, this poetic literature, is going to be rocked on the day. Proverbs says it. The woman, the wise woman, the, the, the personification of wisdom stands in the street and says, all you simple ones and all you fools, come and listen so that you're prepared for the day. And then they don't. And he says, well, if you don't, the day will come, adversity, and I will laugh at you because you didn't prepare. Got to prepare. You cannot buy life insurance after you die. I just a little heads up. There won't be anybody who'll sell it to you. You can't buy fire insurance after your house burns down. Nobody's going to sell it to you. And you can't buy car insurance after you've wrecked your car. Your life needs that insurance. Prepare now. It's very important to learn to live by faith. And discouragement will come as well if you put your hope in so much in this life that you are rocked by this and you think that there's no way out. That's not living by faith. It's God's purpose. It's the reality he wants us to accept. I think chapter 70 of Ecclesiastes, verse 13 to 14, does the best in summarizing what he has said in this, when he says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? What has he made crooked? Life is crooked. It's up and down. It's all over the place. He's made it that way. In the day of, so what do you do? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, he doesn't say in the day of adversity, go around depressed. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the, made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And the result of that is to trust God, to fear before him. Such an important point. So let's conclude it this way. Reality, the reality of life under the sun is you and I cannot create our own fantasy world to live in and find joy and happiness and pleasure and all those things. That's exactly... What, what we saw in chapter 2, 1 through 11. That's what we saw with Solomon trying to do. And it was a failure. It was striving after the wind. You cannot create your own fantasy world. This is what drives me nuts. See, here's my problem of violating Ecclesiastes. <laughs> drives me nuts to watch politicians try to convince us that they, can, that they can produce a fantasy world. You know, the only reason you say that is because you're godless. And it's just frustrating. You're not going to produce dictators. Everybody, you know, has any power, thinks they can come along and create a fantasy world. And of course, you have to do whatever they say 
So the fantasy world happens. <laughs> you can't come into fantasy world. God didn't make it that way. So there is a reality that we must accept. Final verses, 18 through 20 of chapter 3. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may say, see that they are themselves but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. So all, they all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast for all his vanity. There is no, in life under the sun, you're just like an animal. You cannot control the day of death. You cannot control what's going to happen to you. You cannot control it. The one thing you have advantage over is you can trust God. And that's the beauty of the text. Therefore, I'll remember, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. As I've said before, grab yourself a bowl of chili beans and put some Fritos in it and sit down and you have more than Elon Musk or anybody else who's rich and wealthy and does everything they want to do. It's just not so. So, how about you? What is it you are pursuing in life that is better? That is better than just humbly and contentedly receiving the gifts of God and pleasing Him. There's nothing that's better. We can help you this evening in any way. Be glad to do so. Please talk to us afterwards or even step forward at this time. While together we stand and while we sing.